Well, today we are in Matthew chapter 10, and we are beginning at verse 5. So if you have your Bibles, you'll want to go ahead and open them up to Matthew chapter 10, 10, verses 5 through 16 today. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep, the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Last week we took a look at the calling of the twelve disciples. Jesus had many many disciples, but in this particular instance he called twelve men in particular who would later become apostles, and he would use these men. Over the course of his three years with them, he would pour himself into them. He would spend practically every waking moment with them, teaching them, preaching them. He taught to the crowds, but he taught them in private. And he expanded his teaching to them over the course of those three years. And as you all know, at the end of his earthly life and ministry, following the resurrection, as he prepared to ascend back to the Father, Jesus gave them a commission. And that commission was that they were to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel, make disciples of all men, teaching them everything that he had instructed them over the course of three years. And he said, Lo, I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. And, of course, we're sitting here today over 2,000 years later, as a consequence of what those 12 ordinary men did. 12 ordinary men, but 12 ordinary men that when they were blessed by the grace of the Holy Spirit went out and did extraordinary things. Well, we come to a section here where Jesus takes those 12 men and for the first time sends them out on a short-term mission. The long-term mission, the lifelong mission is going to come later, but here we find Jesus sending these 12 out on a short-term mission mission, just sort of dipping their toes, as it were, into the water of ministry. Now, one of the things that I like to point out is that God chooses unlikely people. All you have to do, and we looked at this last week, is look at that list of disciples to realize that it was a motley crew. They were unusual. Nobody was exactly the same. You've got Peter but you've also got James and John, and you've got Andrew. Just among the brothers, Peter and Andrew were very different. Peter appears all throughout the Gospels. You find him in the first half of the book of Acts. Poor Andrew, who well, the only time we encounter him, he's bringing people to Christ, but he hardly ever says a word in the Scriptures. So Peter and Andrew are different. James and John were these sons of thunder. You have zealots in the band, you have a tax collector in the band, Matthew himself. It was a motley crew, and yet God used these men to go out and change the world. It's just a reminder that God can use anybody, and He does use anybody to go out and change the world. Sometimes when I am teaching on the doctrine of election, and I talk about the fact that before the foundations of the earth, God chose some for salvation people will inevitably come up to me afterward and say, well, no, if that is true, if God has chosen to save some, then what's the point of evangelism? What's the point of going out and and, and preaching the gospel if God has already determined beforehand to save them anyway? How many of you have ever wondered about that? Let me tell you, every time I get that kind of a question... Why should we go out and be engaged in the work of ministry or evangelism or sharing the gospel if God has already determined beforehand to save them anyway? My response to that is, well, that is not exactly true. It may be that God is determined to save them, but it is not true to say that God is determined to save them anyway. 
God has chosen a specific way to save them. And he has chosen to call his elect by the proclamation of the gospel by other people. So the first thing we need to remember when it comes to mission work is that the same God who appoints the ends, and that's the only reason we can have confidence, we can have confidence when we go out and preach the word of the Lord. As Isaiah said, the word never comes back to us void. So this is not the kind of work that you can go out and wonder, am I going to be successful? Am I going to be profitable or not? The scripture is very clear. If we go out and we preach the gospel, the word of the Lord never comes back void. Now, you may not see the immediate result. And as I said, that's a frustrating thing to us who live in this culture of instant gratification. We want to see the results. I said to you last week, that's the reason I love to cut the grass. Because you cut the grass and you can immediately see, "Ah, I've accomplished something like that. That's not necessarily true with Christian ministry. And so that could be a little frustrating. But nevertheless, Isaiah promises us that if we do preach the gospel, it will accomplish that for which God has sent it. It will accomplish that for which it was purposed. But we don't always see that in this life. So we are called to preach the gospel, and we are to remember that the same God who appoints the ends is going to appoint the means. It's always amazing to me that the means by which God has chosen to call his people is through the preaching of the word. The folly of the preaching of the word. It's one of the reasons why I place such an emphasis on teaching the Bible and preaching sermons and why it's so important. Because we live in this entertainment culture and we think that the best way to get a message out to people is to entertain them. But it's very interesting to note that Jesus did not entertain people when he proclaimed the kingdom. In fact, oftentimes when he did amazing feats, miracles, signs, and wonders, and so forth, he would tell the people, don't tell anybody about it. Because he knew that they would focus on the miraculous and miss the message. So I want you to understand, when Jesus sends us out, as he sent out those 12 apostles, it is not true that he's going to save people any way. He is going to save people, but He's going to save them in a particular way. He's going to save them through our proclamation of the kingdom. The proclamation of the Word. And that's what we see happening here. These 12 Jesus sent out. The second thing I want you to notice here is that Jesus sent them out almost immediately. Almost immediately after He called them. You know, we have a tendency to think, well, I can only get engaged in Christian ministry after I have been a Christian for years, or perhaps after I've gone to theological school or divinity school and I have somehow learned a degree and now I'm equipped to go out, because that's the way we think. You can't get a job in engineering unless you've got a what? A degree in engineering. So once you've got the foundation for that, well, then you can go out and do the work. And some people think that's the way it is when it comes to the Christian life and when it comes to evangelism. You've got to be trained in this in order to do it. Well, I'm not suggesting to you that training in evangelism or training in Christian ministry is unprofitable. But what I am saying to you is that it is not absolutely necessary. If Jesus Christ has changed your life, if you've had a living encounter with God himself, you are equipped to go out and share the gospel. Now, that's not to say that additional training might not make you more effective, but what I am telling is that you have all the rudimentary gifts that are necessary in order to do the work. Let me give you a perfect example of this. Keep your finger there in Matthew for just a moment and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. Now, Acts chapter 9 recounts a familiar story. It is the story of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who would eventually become the Apostle Paul. And here's what we read. chapter begins, we're going to skip around, but just hang in there with me. Chapter 9 begins with these words, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, you know the story up to that point. Very familiar to you. Paul is on his way to Damascus to arrest these Christians, bring them back for trial and for execution. He regards the Christian gospel as a deceitful distortion of the Jewish faith. And it's while he's on the road that Jesus Christ comes upon him in a very dramatic way, so dramatic, in fact, that we're told that Paul was struck blind. Now, what happened next? Now, there was a disciple at Damascus, verse 10, named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord, and the Lord said to him, Rise, go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus Christ, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Now, this is happening in rapid succession. I mean, Paul doesn't even have a chance to digest everything that's happening to him. And look at the second part of verse 19, the beginning of verse 20. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, some days. That does not mean a long period of time. And immediately, look at verse 20, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Critical word there is immediately. Now, what did he know? Well, there was much that he didn't know. <laughs> he was an expert in the Jewish law. He was raised as a Pharisee. He, he understood very well what the Old Testament prophets taught. He, he understood all of that, or at least he thought he did. But now his world had suddenly been turned upside down because the very God that he claimed to be serving was in fact the very God he discovered that he'd actually been persecuting. Now that's a shocker. You'd want to say to yourself, I need to go home and I need to think through this a little bit. But that's not what happened with him. Immediately, he began to share the good news. Now perhaps the only thing that he could share was what had happened to him on the road to Damascus. But as he shared that story, we're told the people were absolutely confounded. They scratched their heads and they said, well, isn't he the one that came up here to get these people? And something has happened to him. What has happened to him? And I'm sure the word spread and people began to come in droves to Saul and they began to ask him, what happened to you? And he began to tell the story. And as he told the story of what God had done to him, God began to do something in the lives and the hearts of those people. I want you to know the same thing is true for you. You do not need a master of divinity or a doctorate in theology in order to do the work. If you are a Christian, then what you are saying is that you have experienced what Paul experienced. Maybe not as dramatically. But nevertheless, you once were blind, but now you see. You once were lost, but now you're found. And all you need is to be able to tell your story of what Christ has done in your life to others in order to be effective in ministry. Now, Paul would go off for several years 
And he would continue to study the Old Testament scriptures in the light of this new revelation. And then God would send him out into the world. But the point is, immediately after his conversion, he began to share the faith. And the same is what we are called to do as well. So it is true, God is going to save the people he has chosen, but he is not going to save them anyway. He's going to use us. And he expects us to go out and be about the work. In these verses that we have before us today, I want to suggest to you five things. Five things that Matthew reveals to us about Christian ministry and specifically about the ministry of these 12 apostles. First thing that is revealed to us is where they were called to go. Second thing that is revealed to us is the message that they were called to proclaim. Third thing was he talked to them about their material needs. As they went out into the world, how were they to regard money? How were they to regard food and and lodging and covering? Fourth thing that he talked to them about is what they should expect from their audience. And the fifth thing, he explained the character that they were intended to display in the world. Now those were five things that were taught to these apostles, but they are five things that apply really to Christian ministry in all times and all places. We need to know where we are to go. We need to understand the message we are to proclaim. We need to understand material needs and how we are to use them. We need to know what to expect from our audience, and we need to understand the character we are meant to display. So I'm going to go through each of these in turn today. First, we're going to deal with where they were to go. Verse 5 again. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. First thing we notice is that when Jesus sent out the apostles, he gave them very strict instructions. They were not to go among the towns of the Samaritans, and they were not to go among the Gentiles. Instead, they were to go to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, you know who the Gentiles are. The Gentiles are anybody who's not a Jew. They are the uncircumcised people, and the Jews look down on them. As lost. In fact, they were oftentimes referred to as uncircumcised dogs. That is how they were regarded, as the dregs of society. The Jews recognized that they were God's chosen people. They were special. And that meant that everybody else was not. Furthermore, they were told they were not only not to have contact with Gentiles, they were not to have contact with the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans were part Jew and they were part Gentile. At an earlier stage in history during the deportation, we're told that many of the people in the area of Samaria, Samaria was a swath of land between Galilee in the north and Judea in the south. It was just this sandwiched piece of land between those two sections. During the deportation, we're told that the Jews had been expelled from that area, but some left behind. And pagan peoples came in and settled the land, and the Jews that had been left behind intermarried with them. And full-blooded Jews regarded them as half-breeds, as sellouts. And furthermore, the Samaritans had developed a competitive religion, a religion that was sort of a corruption of traditional Judaism. One of the things, for example, that they argued is that you didn't need to go to the temple in Jerusalem in order to worship. You could go to their rival temple on Mount Gerizim. So the Jews absolutely despised the Samaritans almost more, perhaps more, than they despised the Gentiles. When Jesus sent out his twelve, he gave them strict instructions. They were not to go among the Samaritans, and they were not to go among the Gentiles. Now the question we have to ask ourselves is why that restriction? I mean, didn't Jesus care about the Samaritans? Well, obviously he did because he had more than one encounter with the Samaritans. While most Jews, when traveling from Galilee to Judea or Judea to Galilee, would go around Samaria, what was known as the Transjordan route, they would cross the Jordan River, go north or go south, and then recross the Jordan River without going through Samaria. We're told on one occasion in the Gospel of John, Jesus had to go through Samaria. 
Now, the only way you can take that is that he was compelled by the Holy Spirit to go through Samaria because, I've already pointed out, there was another route. It may have been longer. It may have been more circuitous, but that didn't matter. That's the route that most Jews took. But we're told Jesus had to go to Samaria, and it was while going through Samaria that he encountered the Samaritan woman at the well. And Jesus didn't reject her. As a matter of fact, he shared the gospel with her. He asked her for a drink. And when she said, how could you, a Jewish man, ask me for a drink? He said, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd be asking him for a drink. And he would give you living water. Whoever drinks of this water again is going to thirst, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. It will become a spring of water welling up for eternal life. And the woman said, give me this water. And Jesus didn't say, well, I can't do that. Jesus said, all right, let me tell you about it. So it's obvious that Jesus did care for the Samaritans. And furthermore, we do know that Jesus had a heart for Gentiles. As a matter of fact, even though it was true that the Jews were called to come out and be separate from other people, it had been prophesied way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, as a matter of fact, at the calling of Abraham, that the Jews would one day be a light to enlighten the Gentiles. And we know that later on, the Apostle Paul was called specifically Isn't that what we're told in the book of Acts, in that account that we just read? Ananias said, oh, I'm not going there to lay hands on that Paul. I've heard about him. He's here to arrest people like me. And the Lord says, don't you worry about it. You go. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. For I have determined that he will be a light to bring the gospel to the Gentile people. So it is true, Jesus puts a restriction on his disciples here in Matthew chapter 10, but I don't think it's because God has no concern for Samaritans and no concern for Gentiles, because when you read elsewhere in the scripture, it's quite obvious that he does. So if that's not the case, then what is the restriction? I want to suggest to you two reasons why there might be a restriction, at least at this point, in the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of his disciples. You've all heard the expression, how do you eat an elephant? Well, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, that's right. That's how you eat an elephant, one bite at a time. Sometimes you you look at the task before you, and it looks absolutely gargantuan, enormous. What's the best thing to do when you are faced with an overwhelming amount of work? The best thing to do is just start somewhere. You've got to start somewhere, you may have to start small, and you may have to work at it over the course of a long period of time, but eventually you get there. That's what students oftentimes have to do when they come out with an enormous amount of debt. Well, what am I going to do? I've got $100,000 worth of student debt. How am I ever going to pay this off? Well, you've got to start somewhere. I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus said to his disciples, look, I'm sending you out. There's much that you don't know. There's much that you don't understand, but I'm going to send you out. And they're saying, well, the world looks so enormous. And Jesus said, I understand that, but you've got to start somewhere. Start with your own people. That's a good message for us, isn't it? When you are told to share the gospel, sometimes you look at the world and you say, well, where do I even begin? I'm reminded of something that in English bishop once said when he was called to a very important task, and it was a gargantuan task. He had to rebuild a ministry in a diocese, and he just, he didn't even know how he was going to begin. Somebody asked him, well, how do you feel, bishop? And he said, I feel like a mosquito in a nudist camp. (laughs) He says, I know what I ought to do, but I don't know where to begin. (laughs) There are times in life we feel like that, don't we? We feel like a mosquito in a nudist camp. We know what we ought to do. We don't even know where to begin. Well, one good place to begin is with your own people. Those of you who went to the diocesan convention or read the reports about the diocesan convention, the whole convention had a theme, and the theme was neighboring. How many of us actually know our neighbors anymore? You know, there was a time when we were growing up, most of us, where we lived in a community where we knew our neighbors, and our neighbors knew us. That was one of the reasons why my mother never worried. In the summertime, when we were kids, we were sent out of the house and we came home when it was dark. And whoever's house we happened to be at, that mother happened to feed us that day. 
And my mother never worried that we were going to get in trouble, not to say that we didn't, but she always knew she was going to find out about it. Because the neighbors knew us. If we were doing something, stealing apples, and we weren't supposed to be stealing apples from somebody's tree, somebody would inevitably come out and say, Jeffrey Miller, you wait till I call your mother. That's not the world in which we live anymore, is it? Most of us don't live in that kind of a community, that kind of a neighborhood anymore. We don't even know who lives on either side of us sometimes or across the street. And if we know them, we may know them by name or know them by sight, but we don't necessarily know them. One place to begin sharing the gospel is close to home. You don't have to go over to Africa in order to share the good news of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, in our day and age, the Africans are coming here. So you can begin very close to home. Do you know your neighbors? Well, be a good neighbor. Begin to share the good news with them. I think that's one reason why Jesus said, just go to the lost sheep of Israel. Don't assume that just because they're Israelites or they're Jews, they understand the truth of the gospel. They don't understand that the gospel has come. Listen, you can even evangelize churchgoers. That's what Jesus was saying. He's called them the lost sheep of what? Israel. There are many people who have been hurt by the church, have left the church, are looking for a church. You have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. But I think there is another reason, and perhaps a deeper reason, why Jesus restricted his disciples, initially at least, to going to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the reason for that is that the Jews were indeed a special people. They were... God's chosen people. Now, you can't get around that. The one thing that there is no room for in the Christian church, and in the past it has been a blight upon the church, an evil sin, is anti-Semitism. The Jews were God's special people. And if you don't believe me, just keep your finger there in Matthew and turn back for a moment to the very beginning, to the book of Deuteronomy. Easy to find. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Fifth book of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 7. We're going to get in at verse 5. Excuse me, verse 1 through verse 5. And this is the Lord speaking. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many of the nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote yourself to complete destruction. You shall not make covenant with them and you shall know mercy. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods." Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. In other words, you are to have absolute, unquestioned loyalty to me. Why? Here it is. Verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. In other words, you are to be loyal to me. Why? Because I have chosen you. And I have chosen you to be precious out of all the peoples of the earth. Now, the question that immediately arises in our mind is, why did God choose the Jews? I mean, why didn't he choose the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and all the other sites. Now he tells us in the very next verse, I've chosen you as a treasured people out of all the peoples of the earth who are on the face of the earth, and it was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. 
but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did God choose the Jews? Because it pleased him to do so. Why didn't he choose the Egyptians? Most of us would. It's interesting to note, they they were a powerful people, the Egyptians. God says, I didn't choose them. And I didn't choose you because you're special. I chose you and made you special. So they were God's chosen people. And I think in many respects, that's the real reason why there was a restriction. For reasons, and it may be, that you can't say that God didn't have a reason. It may mean that he had reasons. They're just reasons that are secret to us. They are not the reasons that we would have chosen. But for whatever reason, God did choose the Jews. And he chose them for a purpose. To be his treasured possession, but also, he says, to be a light. A light to enlighten the Gentiles. Let's just go through this a little bit, because you need to understand the biblical narrative if you're going to be effective in sharing the good news. Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 through 18. This is the calling of Abraham and the promise to Abraham. And the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Now, you know the story. God had made a promise to Abraham that Abraham was going to have an heir and that that heir was going to be his own son by Sarah, even though Sarah was well beyond childbearing age and Abraham is described as being as good as dead. I think that is the most pitiful description of anybody. Who wants that as an epitaph on your gravestone? Sarah, well beyond childbearing age. And Abraham, when he was called, were described as being as good as dead. And yet we're told that Abraham believed God. And sure enough, he did have a son, and you know that that son was Isaac. And then God did a most extraordinary thing. God called on Abraham after he had received this long-anticipated son... He called on Abraham to go and sacrifice that son. And Abraham was prepared to do it. Now, you know that God ultimately intervened and the child was saved. But God was testing Abraham. And that's why we read here in the next section. He says, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall, listen to this, all the nations of the earth be blessed. So God called the Jews because they were his people. It pleased him to do so. He set his affection upon them and he gave them a task. And their task was to be different from all the peoples of the earth. And in being different, they were to be a light to enlighten the nations of the world. This is exactly what we read in the prophet Isaiah. And it's also what we read in Luke chapter 2. When you come into the church every Sunday, you see above the central doors a painting entitled what? Anybody know what the title of the painting is? The Nunc Dimittis. And it shows... Simeon and the baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph shortly after the Lord's birth when he was taken up to the temple to be presented. And you remember that Simeon, that old man who had been praying for the redemption of Israel, took the child in his arms and he said what? Now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For these eyes of mine have seen thy salvation which thou hast prepared for all the world to see. A light to enlighten the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. So it is true God called the Jews among all the peoples of the earth, but it is also true that he called them for a purpose, and that purpose was that they would be a light to enlighten the nations. But he had to call them first. And we see that most clearly, I think, in John chapter 1. John chapter 1.
the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. I think that there's a restriction here on where those first apostles were to go because, yes, they needed to begin the work somewhere and it appeared overwhelming. But the second reason is because the Jews really were God's chosen people. They were special. He had set his affection upon them and he had a plan for them. And part of that plan was that through them he would bless the world. Remember what I said? God is going to save people, but he's not going to save them anyway. He uses means. He uses us. And he chose to use the Jews to save the world. And as Christians, we need to acknowledge that. We need to remember that our faith is grounded in their faith. Anytime I think about this, I cannot help but ask myself, who but God could think of that? (laughs) Who but God could come up with a plan like that? Let me walk you through it sometime, because if you really begin to comprehend it and understand it, it begins to boggle the mind. It not only helps us to understand the calling of the Jews in the Old Testament, it helps us to understand the calling of the church in the New Testament. The best way to do this is to take a look at Romans. So turn to Romans for just a moment. Well, it's not going to be for just a moment, but turn to Romans. In the first eight chapters of Romans, what Paul is trying to proclaim is that there's only one way to get right with God. Now, his whole point is that we are not right with God. He said, by our sin, we have actually declared war on God. That's one of the reasons why every Sunday when we say the Lord's Prayer, we say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's because we have trespassed on God's territory. You see that very clearly in the Genesis account of the fall. The serpent comes to Eve and he says, why don't you eat of that tree? And Eve says, well, we can't eat of that tree because God told us we can eat of any tree in the garden except for that tree. If we eat of that tree, we're going to die. And the serpent says, ah, but you will not die. If you eat of that tree, you will what? Be like God. And we said that that is the root of all sin. The root of all sin is the desire to be like God. That is to say, to be in charge, to be in control, to be the masters of our own fate, the captains of our own destiny, and answerable to no one. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that what you're saying is, I don't want God to be God. (laughs) I want to be God. And that is a form of treachery. That is a form of treason. You have trespassed on God's territory. The way I always describe this is like Caesar at the Rubicon. Caesar had been told by the Roman Senate that if he stayed on his side of the river and they stayed on their side of the river, there would be peace. But Caesar, as you know, charged into the Rubicon with the words, the die is cast, and this great war erupted. Well, that's what you and I have done by our sin. We have charged across forbidden territory, and the die was cast, and we have been at war with God ever since. And the problem with declaring war on God is, guess what? You're not going to win. Try as you might. And then when you begin to realize you're not going to win, you think to yourself, I need to make peace with God. But the question is this, what can you offer to God as a peace offering that God cannot provide for himself? See, God doesn't need us. We're creatures. He could make millions of us. So we find ourselves in this impossible situation where we have declared war on God, we cannot win the war on God, and we have nothing to offer to God by which we can make peace. So we are in a pretty helpless situation unless what? Unless God makes peace with us. And that's Paul's whole point in Romans 1 through 8, is that that is exactly what God has done. God, who is the injured party, has made peace with us by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to pay the price for our sins, a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. And how, then, do we appropriate that? By faith. Now, that's Paul's point in Romans 1 through 8. You receive that free gift 
of peace with God by faith. Not by virtue of what you do. Go ahead and try to keep the law if you will, but it's not just a matter of keeping it outwardly. It's keeping it in your minds and in your hearts. And good luck with that. No, there's only one way to receive that free gift of salvation. It is to receive it by faith. It is grace, undeserved, unearned favor. It is salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, that is the whole point of Romans 1 through 8. Now, of course, that raises a serious question then. The Gentiles have accepted that. You and I have accepted that message, presumably. But what about the Jews? John says, He came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. But to the Gentiles, who did receive him, by faith, he gave the right to become children of God. Well, then what happens to the Jews? They were his chosen people. He has promised a way of salvation. It was through the Jews that what? The Savior of the world would come. And they have rejected that Savior. What's going to happen to them? So Romans 1 through 8 says that there's only one way to be saved. And that is through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. In Romans 9, 1 through 5, he talks about the fact that unfortunately the Jews have rejected God's way of salvation. But he acknowledges the fact that they have a rich heritage. He said, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow. Now remember, Paul is a Jew, so he's speaking as a Jew. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He said, my heart is broken for them. If I could trade places with them, I would be willing to sacrifice my own soul for the sake of the rest of my brethren. He goes on to say this, verse 4, for they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. This is their birthright. The glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Savior, the answer, who is God over all, blessed forever. It's through the Jews that the Savior of the world has come, and yet they have rejected their very own Savior. But he goes on to say, That doesn't mean that God's word has failed. Look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are accounted as offspring. In other words, he's saying it's not as though the word of God has failed because you don't become a child of God by virtue of your heritage. Nobody gets into the kingdom of God riding on somebody else's coattail. So even people who were not Israelites by the flesh because they have embraced the true Messiah, who is the Savior of Israel as well, have been adopted, grafted in to the house of Israel. That's what Paul is saying. He said, furthermore, this was prophesied. You go down further to verse 27. He said, the prophet Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. That's that promise made to Abraham. Because you have not withheld your son, I am what? I'm going to give you your descendants. And they're going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach. The prophet Isaiah cries out of Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Only a remnant. All the riches, all the heritage, the prophets, the promises, the Old Testament covenant, it was theirs. And that was ultimately fulfilled in the Savior Jesus Christ. And they have rejected him. And now only a remnant are saved. Well, hold on. Let's get to the end here. We're not done yet. 
But then he goes on in chapter 11, verse 1, to ask this question. I ask then, has God rejected his people? And what's the response? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Here's an interesting thing. Paul is saying it's not as though God has rejected his people because some of us have accepted. So it's not as though God has simply cut off Israel and he's moved on to a new people. He says, I'm an Israelite. And I'm sure if you'd been talking to him, he would have said Peter and James and John and Andrew and these 12 that Jesus sent out, they were all Jews. So it's not as though the word of God has failed. He said, but still, that's, that's really not the point. Because he goes on to say this. Verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall by no means? Rather, through their trespass, listen to this, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So let me give it to you straight. And then we're going to skip ahead to verses 25 and following. Here's the mystery, as Paul would put it. God's plan before the foundations of the earth, Jesus is described as the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth. God's plan to save a sinful humanity was this. He would call a particular man, Abraham, way back in Genesis at the beginning. And from Genesis, from that man, Abraham, he would bring a son. And through that son he would bring a multitude of descendants. And those multitude of descendants, he would choose as his special people, the Jews, the Israelites. And God would set his affection upon them and reveal himself to them in a way that he revealed himself to nobody else. And through them would come the unique Savior of the world. But they would reject that Savior So that the gospel message, having been rejected by God's own people, would go out to other people who would embrace it, embrace by faith the good news of Jesus Christ, the only peace that we have with God. And as the Gentiles came in and began to live differently and experience the joy and the hope and the promise that had been given to the Israelites long ago, they're going to be provoked to jealousy. And they're going to say, why should they have what belongs to us? I want to be a part of that. And what Paul is saying is they will provoke to jealousy. And in the last days, there will be a great, great ingathering of God's own people. And all of Israel, Jew and Gentile alike, not by virtue of the flesh, but by virtue of faith in the promise, all of Israel will what? Be saved. And I ask you the question, who but God can think of that? (laughs) Who but God can think of that? And that's why when Paul gets to the end of this section, when he considers what God is doing, he says what? He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. Now that is a story worth telling. That is what God is doing in history. And I think that is the reason why in Matthew chapter 10 you see that restriction. It is because God has a plan to save the world, but it's not to save the world anyway. It is to save the world in a particular way, by taking the gospel to the Jews first. Once they reject it, it goes to the Gentiles. As the Gentiles embrace it, the Jews will be provoked to jealousy, and they will desire to come in and be a part, and so all of Israel shall be saved. Oh, the riches and the depths and the majesty of God. How inscrutable his ways. All of Israel means all of those who are part of God's plan, his elect, 
Jew and Gentile alike. Because as Paul says earlier in that epistle to the Romans, being a part of Israel is not necessarily a part of simply being able to trace your blood lineage back to Abraham. We're not talking about all Jews. We're talking about Jews and Gentiles alike. But I do think what you find in Romans chapter 11 is the story of a great revival in the last days. And I think you're beginning to see that even now. There are great movements right now taking place in Israel and other places, you know, Messianic Jews, Jews for Jesus, people who have come to realize without giving away their Judaism that Jesus Christ is in fact the long-promised, long-anticipated Messiah. I think you're beginning to even now see some of that. Now, that's a remarkable story, isn't it? That is God at work. And that's why I asked the question, who but God could think of that? That's not the way we would do it. That's why we have that marvelous vision in the book of Revelation. And after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Well, I had more to say, but... That's a good stopping point for this Thursday. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise that while you have chosen to save people, you have not chosen to save them anyway. And you sent out those 12 ordinary men, but you empowered them to do extraordinary things. And you could do the same with us. We don't have to go far away. They didn't have to go far away. All they had to do is go to the lost sheep of Israel to begin to share the news, the news that would eventually make its way around the world and bring the nations to their knees. Grant us the grace and the courage and above all the desire to do the same thing here in our neighborhood. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.